Packrip Media presents NFTeach. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy. Welcome to this episode of NFTeach. I am joined on this episode by Plunge Father, and we talk about a wide range of topics in this episode. We discuss our NFT NYC experience. Uh, Plunge shares a pretty interesting perspective on where Top Shot is with Series 3. Uh, we also talk about collection strategy for Top Shot, collection strategy for the broader NFT space. We talk about derivatives, and then we get into mental health and well-being toward the end. But all in all, I think you're really going to enjoy what Plunge has to say on this episode. I mean, without further ado, I think we should just jump into it. Here we go. Plunge Father coming at you right now. Joining me on the Packrip Media guest line is Plunge Father. Plunge, welcome to NFTH. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, man. Uh, you know, we had spoken through like Zoom and, and we had connected that way, but uh, it was really exciting to meet you and the rest of the crew at NFT NYC. Um, what was your sort of, and I listened to your stream this past week, but what was your sort of like reflection on the NFT NYC experience from your perspective? Yeah, so sort of sort of multifold. I think the conference itself was uh, hit or miss. I think there were some cool sessions that I attended, but broadly speaking, it was as if Ted had an event that no one planned. Uh, <laughs> and they invited a bunch of people to come speak and it wasn't particularly well curated. Um, they did some really interesting things in sort of dividing out the venues to accommodate for everybody um, and sort of had you know a, a running list of speakers relative to a particular topic at a given venue. Um, but I think they would be well served to have next year and years beyond sort of a, a, perhaps a more curated approach to the types of content that they were after, um, as well as sort of ensuring higher quality of speaker content. Because uh, I think there are a lot of folks that got invited to speak or that uh, you know accepted an offer to speak uh, without a whole lot of context on what they should be talking about uh, and sort of came came up and winged it for lack of a better term. Um, so there were good panel discussions that I attended. I heard lots of things that I've internalized and sort of have helped me um, contextualize what the future looks like in a little bit of a different way than you know my insular worldview um, had previously. Uh, but I think the big takeaway for me outside of the conference is that like it sort of validates that there are lots of really interested people doing lots of interesting things in this space. And there are lots of institutional investment uh, operations that are are going to be involved outside of just celebrity influence and big names in you know movies, television, music, and whatnot. We often think about sort of where things are going based on the visible people that are involved with something, which are the people we know of. But I, I think the people behind the scenes or the companies and orgs behind the scenes that are making big moves, um, both financially and sort of philosophically, I, I was I was not surprised to learn that, but I was sort of validated in learning uh, everything that's going on and, and still only get, catching us just a small sliver of the, of the overall picture. Yeah, I would concur with a lot of what you said, especially around this idea that the conference itself was definitely the backseat passenger of the the week, the parties and the connecting with people and not parties for partying sake, but just like 
getting able to actually sort of meet and build connections and relationships with people that you didn't really know before. Uh, and, and then those, what's been cool to me is that I feel like those have, those relationships have sort of continued on past the event as we've returned back to virtual world and Twitterverse and everything else, which was super cool. The conference itself, yeah. You know, I'd rather hear uh, five to 10 minute talks from speakers that aren't engaging than 40 minute talks from speakers that aren't engaging. So from that perspective, the way it was organized was cool. Some of the panels are really interesting and the areas of, of learning that I really had earmarked were really around everything but static JPEG NFT. So I was super interested in film and music. And so I got to see some interesting speakers and obviously in the Palladium day one, Quentin Tarantino shows up and does a random talk about minting seven scenes from Pulp Fiction, which was insane. But your point around like the financial institutions getting involved, I think is a good one. Because in 2017, when blockchain was starting in terms of like being adopted and people were talking about it, the banks were moving toward blockchain adoption silently, but but under underneath the current of what was happening. So these, and that is a good way to know what's going on, right? When, when the most uh, large and slow to move financial institutions are, are recognizing there's something there. It's a pretty good indication that we're, we're, we're all going to make it and that something big is on the horizon. Yeah, at least that they're paying attention to it and, and allocating real resources, both human and capital, to the problems that the space is trying to solve or the you know industries or verticals that it's you know seeking to disrupt in in many cases um and given that it's sort of like a very or at least my perception of the nft space broadly is that it's sort of coming from a place of decentralization where it's not really driven by a, a single entity or a single large group of entities it's driven from sort of a grassroots uh you know distributed network effect uh, the fact that these major players are sort of recognizing that diving headfirst in and and like i said allocating both human and, and capital resources to it the network effects of that in a decentralized landscape are going, going to be massive um, so i think the next six months in particular are going to be very interesting to see who comes to the table um, there are going to be groups that have already come to the table, but they have done so silently or quietly because they've been building and building and building and they're going to release the Kraken, so to speak. Um, so I think there's going to be some major disruption or at least major splashy things happening beyond, oh, hey, Jimmy Fallon bought a board ape, which is cool, but like it moves the needle for a specific subset of people relative to a very specific type of application from an NFT perspective. And the ripple effects of that are are sort of self-contained. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot more bigger, large scale movements and shifts. Um, if I knew what they were, I'd be a quadrillionaire uh, or in a few months, but um, it certainly feels like there's, there's a lot of momentum and, and we're going to just get more and more of it in the next few months. I mean, let's talk about the, the moon pay slash celebrity thing going on with these board apes, because um, it, it, I don't think it was like public knowledge when Jimmy Fallon bought the ape that MoonPay sort of arranged for this in some sort of like brokered sponsorship, you know, uh, arrangement. But it's not just uh, Jimmy Fallon. It's Post Malone. And I, do you remember who the other ones are? Who, who else is Steph Curry, I think. Oh, that so might Steph have been through FTX. But um, there's the vast majority of these people that are influencers and whatnot, they're either being brought in by brands that have pitched them uh you know studios that have 
caught the right ear of the right manager of the right person at the right time uh, to you know sell them on the idea that this is going to be something big. And they, it, that's not to say that it's inauthentic. Um, it's just something that's important to recognize that like the you know your entry point, your your en or an entry point for a particular actor or group of actors not specifically actors, but, you know, individuals um, may be different than just a totally, hey, they saw it on their Twitter page and decided that they wanted in at $200,000, right? Um, it's a, it's a much more calculated push um, to, to sort of bring those types of people in, generally speaking, because they're not going to see this stuff in passing. They have to be pitched on it uh, to some degree. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. And again, I, I don't think it's a negative one per se, um, or, or something that we should be looking at as like, not cool or not great or whatever those things are but um it's just so important to recognize that that's an institutional movement right it's not necessarily just an individual person deciding something yeah and, and now we're seeing all of the ripples from like traditional finance sort of start to, to peek in the issues that, that we've talked about in the space for a while around market manipulation and influencer pump and dump and all of these things that have happened and then there is this sort of thin veil over like i don't think i in my mind when steph got the ape, I was not thinking about someone purchasing it for him. I was thinking that someone said, hey, this is cool. You should check this out. And he said, yeah, let me get one of these. So I think that like having a bit of caution when you're assessing these things on surface level is healthy skepticism to probably have. Let's let's transition into to something else, which is season or series three of Top Shot has started. And man, it has been... Um, it has been a rough go for the the Top Shot crew. And the irony is, as soon as we get done, I'm actually buying the Jimmy Butler Run It Back that I've lusted after for since I started collecting, and I'll have my Bulls set collection done. So I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm specifically less bullish about Top Shot as an idea or a platform, but it's been a rough start to Series 3. Like, Plunge, like where, where are you at in terms of everything that's been going on in terms of the Series 3 packs, the 10 packs, the 5 packs twice, the misspellings and the wrong players identified in the moments? Like, what's sort of your holistic <laughs> take to all of this right now? Uh, oh, man, that's a, that's a loaded question. I'm going to turn it back to you really quickly. Why do you think that it's not going well? So, and the reason oh, we that did I talk, that we because, did talk about this a little bit when we were in New York, actually. Now that I now yeah. that I recall, right? Yeah, I think so. That, so, as an individual collector, I think the perception can be that it's not going well because of insert misstep here, and you articulated a handful of them, right? Where, um, hey, it's from a demand perspective, with the first pack drop, two hundred thousand packs available something like 80 or 90,000 people showed up in the queue, but you could buy 10. So only 35,000 collectors were able to get this, uh, these individual packs or uh, packs of moments. Um, this past week, you know, they sort of iterated based on that to, to bring 350,000 packs in and 70 or just under a hair under 70,000 people lined up. Um, and they got through, you know, at five each, they got through every single person that was in that queue that wanted to stick around. And there were still left over for people that wanted to go back in for a double dip. Um, so from a, from a perception perspective, I think as a collector, whether or not the things that you're cracking out of those moments are things you want to keep long-term or that you think have a financial investment opportunity or whatever else, from a top shot perspective, they just did... 550,000 packs at $9 a pack in two weeks, right? Eight days. So from a top shot perspective, is it, is it a, like, did they start the season? Well, yeah, they sold out two massive pack drops way bigger than they ever have with 
a relatively large collector base coming to the table to do that. It's not the same numbers, at least on paper, as were there in um, you know February, March, and April when they you know posted you know hundreds of thousands of accounts logging into these queues, which remains to be seen. Are they real people? Have they just not come back? Whatever the case is, but seventy thousand people lining up for what is on the surface pretty like low value, relatively speaking. Up. There is interest in the platform. They've demonstrated that they have demand. They're getting the common stuff in people's hands to facilitate their trade ticket mechanism and the economy of that, which we can go into a longer <laughs> diatribe about that later on. But if you're looking at this from the NBA's perspective, and you see, you know, you're not in the noise, right? There's not, there's not people at the NBA like Adam Silver's not in NFT Twitter and being like, oh my God, <laughs> people are footing Top Shot, like. No, they sold 550,000 packs at $9 a pack, which comes out to what, like four or $5 million more yeah. than that? So something in there, right? Like you're looking at $5 million of revenue in eight calendar days and a massive amount of transactions in that time, pe time period as well. Um, I was actually looking at this because I'm putting together a, um, a, a talk for um, Robert Morris. There's a, a class on the business of esports coming up that I'm going to sort of be a guest speaker to and sort of speak about Top Shot NFTs, sports NFTs in general. And I was doing some legwork trying to figure out like, hey, where are we at, relatively speaking? Where, you know, what does this month or last month look like in terms of number of transactions, in terms of, you know, users and, and whatnot? And, and what you're seeing is like, other than February, March, and April, which you have these monster, monster months from a revenue perspective and transactions perspective because supply was so limited and there was such a zeitgeist around it, you're seeing, relatively speaking, about $40 million in transactions a month. And you're seeing, roughly speaking, the same amount, uh, roughly similar numbers of, uh, of those a month. Uh, I think the, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like just north of a, a million transactions in a given month. Like by all like, tangible metrics if you're looking at this from the context of the nba like this is successful right and and i know that dapper and, and the nba top shot team have to wrestle community sentiment and collector sentiment and community management with the realities of generating revenue for a revenue generating product but it's it, it's like it's a clash right now and i think we as collectors i consider myself someone that's like pretty in the streets. I line up for these things. I care about it. I'm trying to build my collection, all these different things. Like we see a very specific set of noise. And I think it's, it's really important for us to sort of zoom out and then zoom out again and recognize what's happening because I, I think people spend far too much time worrying about minutia that they don't need to worry about at all because it doesn't really affect them. And we talked about this actually at NFT NYC. We were at the 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 Monax sandbox party having a lovely uh, morning at that point, I think. And we were I was discussing from my perspective, like my concern around things not appreciating over time. Like in my mind, I want Series One to continue to grow in value over time. And your take on that was like, you know, when you're cardboard collecting, you get a pack and eight, eight of eight may be junk or eight of nine may be junk. And that's just the way it is. So, you know, what, and, and, and you brought up a good example from a, an old card collection. Why don't you talk through that? 
Yeah, so I, I my dad bought a bunch of cardboard stuff from when he was in the 60s, uh, like collecting as like a seven or eight year old to my house when he visited in October. And we were going through it and having some fun looking at things. And I actually went to a card appraiser and had uh, him look at the collection because I had no idea what was in it. And I don't know anything about old baseball cards um, or anything else that he had. Um, and it's sort of interesting that, you know, he went through with a fine tooth comb for this collection, um, not because I'm in interested in selling it, but I'm interested in making sure that like, if my house burns down, do I have the appropriate insurance coverage to cover this thing that I own at this point? Cause he gave it to me. Um, and some of the things that came out of it, like, you know, from that have serious and significant corollaries in the top shot, which is, hey, the stuff that is valuable in this card set is, are things that, hey, this person's a, um, a um a hall of famer or they were a star at the time right and then hey how scarce is this particular thing and there was one really really funny example from um a set of cards that were and i think i told this on stream when veerman was on but um there was a set of cards that you cut out of post cereal boxes and in the 60 like 61 or 62 and this the one of the most valuable cards in that particular set which i was happy to learn uh was uh, for a player named mel roach <laughs> and the reason that that card is valuable relative to other cards is not because mel roach was a hall of famer but it was because that card was on a very specific brand of cereal that no one liked um it was on a uh, and, and people didn't care about that player so it deteriorated over time the, the the population of those things became relatively scarce right and so you can take a couple things from like appraising a 70 year old baseball card collection versus like thinking about top shot in the moment which is all right what is the stuff that in and i'm talking long term not like a next year right like long term what's going to hold value it's the scarce stuff and it's the stuff for really really important and really really famous things and that could be a really really famous a really really important player or what what top shot offers that cardboard does not is it a really important contextual moment right is it important in the context of that player's career is it important in the context of the story of the nba and i think one thing that i'm seeing and one thing that i've, I've sort of internalized from conversations with austin and others at dapper is like nba top shot is seeking to be sort of like the scrapbook of the nba right yes it's a cardboard collection corollary but like how do we tell the story of the season and right now everybody's so focused on oh my god there's 60,000 of these things and they're worth three dollars and it's just for trade tickets but like all right how do we tell the story of the season over time and how do you tell the story of this player throughout their career um and if you're looking at things long term which i 98.95 percent that's my round number of, of collectors on top shot are not thinking about this long term they're thinking about this in the very short term and perhaps in the medium term um th they're not thinking about those types of things down the line so to your point about s1 holding value like if you're thinking about will it be more valuable next month or at the turn of the year that's predicated very heavily on number of eyeballs people in the space uh, you know new money coming in if their market dynamics are there but if you're thinking about things way down the line the calculus becomes very very different yeah and you know, I think, too, that when you look at Series 1 and even some of the things in Series 2, until you get to the playoffs, the way that the moments are chosen and are stacked, the the distribution of players has been something that has been, you know, uh, I, I don't want to say it's a problem. It's just it's it, I don't think it's been done with the level of intentionality of, of how they're trying to to make this 
go in this series. They're, they're, they're trying to not have an overflow of job moments because, you know, that, that long-term hold, it, it, it does have a scarcity issue in terms of how much jaw you can buy. And then the value of jaw, even though he produces these moments that are so exceptional that you just want to own everything he, he touches. I mean, Alex Caruso is that guy for me. Like I have a ton of his moments when he's on the Lakers too. Of I just, I just want to have his moments and, and collect his moments. So I do think that the, the, the idea of zooming out, um, it, you, you know, I was really involved in education Twitter before coming into the NFT space. And there were two sort of, of things that would happen that ended up making me leave that space. The first was toxic positivity. It was like this, we can't critique anything because it's wrong and we should just, everything's awesome all the time. And then the second um, was like just sort of an echo chamber effect where like everyone started to just sort of chirp the same thing. So I think the idea of zooming out uh, is a particularly useful one right now. Uh, I'm about to finish the Bulls set collection tonight if we get out of maintenance mode here. Um, <laughs> and and for me, it's it's predicated on the belief that I just believe that they're going to do something for being a full set collector. I just think that there's going to be, as a fan of the Bulls, I just believe that as I think about repatriating back to Chicago, like that's going to be something that's valuable to me. So for me, it's something that's worth doing, knowing that there can't be more than 275 people that ever have that set fully collected. It seems like a, a good approach to me. So what is your approach to collecting Top Shot at this moment, Plunge? Like what, when you think about how you go about this, what, and then I want to do, ask you the same question about NFTs, broad scale, not Top Shot. Like what's your approach to collecting those right now? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, you know, the beauty of the blockchain, you can see it all happen in real time, right? So if you go into my collection, the handful of things that you're going to see are I collected a handful of team sets, the Bucks, namely, because I live an hour and a half from Milwaukee and owning all of the Bucks players makes a lot of sense for the same reasons that you articulated for the Bulls, right? I am of the belief that they will continue to reward full team collection sets um, and, and, and particularly as well, like, S2 or S3, like the, the there are going to be things that are for the very, very small and there are going to be things for the larger. Um, I think they're a little bit away from that, given that they have platform issues and community issues and economics and marketplace issues that they still need to tackle. Right. But they have onboarded a ton of brand partnership people, athlete partnership people like they are building out for experiential stuff. Um, you can see that in all of the sweet experiences that they've done and they've executed pretty darn well, right? Like they are building out teams to create those things to make the future of fandom, quote unquote, a reality beyond just, hey, I own cool video clips, right? And I can flex them to my friends digitally, right? There's ways that that, that plays out in real life that I think um, they should lean into as hard as they can. So I have a handful of team sets for that. Um, I have Charlotte and Minnesota, Minnesota because they're relatively they in, cheap. inexpensive to collect to, to build my collector score. Um, so from a collector score perspective, that's another big piece for me, right? I'm keeping my collector score relatively high. Um, I have somewhere in the neighborhood of like 13,000 or 14,000 collector score points at this point. I don't have like a map. People, I think, conflate that like I have a huge account. I actually don't have a, a huge account, relatively speaking, um, but it, it's pretty concentrated. And I've got a, a handful of like pretty heavy hitters from a collector score perspective so that when pack drops come, like I can be eligible for the highest rate of hit, whether it's priority queue or otherwise. That was why I collected the WNBA set back when I did, um, which I just gifted to my wife um, so she could have. Uh, but the idea that you're building for preparation into 
pack drops. Pack drops for me are fun. I love doing it. It's also from an economics and like uh, from a like investment perspective, other than the throwdowns pack, every single pack that has dropped has been plus EV. We talk about pl like expected value. Yes, not every single pack in a given pack may be worth more than the cost of what you paid, but your expected value for those things because of the types of lottery hits that you can you can achieve are important, right? So positioning myself in that position. And then also that, that allows me to get new fun stuff as well. So you talk about these cool jaw moments, right? Like a specialty set for that thing. Like it, it, it's instead of having to go buy it on the marketplace, if I have an opportunity to hit something like that in a pack, it's, it can be really special. Um, and that was really you know, sort of solidified for me at the end of last season when, um, you know, the Cool Cats Nine Lives Lounge stuff allowed me access into the MGLE queue and the, um, the legendary queue, which I hit on both, like very lucky to, to have those things. And I got moments at a cost, like a legendary moment of Devin Booker at a cost that like I wouldn't have otherwise put money up to afford. Um, so those are the types of things that I'm, I'm doing specifically. And then uh, the last thing I sort of got at this a minute ago is the Nine Lives Lounge stuff. I think holding that set is going to be, um, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say ROI or positive or anything, but like my cost basis for that is relatively low, comparatively speaking to what the current value of the set is, because I did it over time. I got all of the rewards organically. Um, I didn't put a, you know, a ton, a ton of money into it. Um, yeah, you didn't I chase it. Bar you, you, you were already... Yeah. <laughs> I was already like heavily involved and engaged and, you know, I made trades to, you know, get assets within it. I, you know, I didn't spend all the dollars. It was sort of like re repurposing my collection to account for it. Um, and that I think will afford not necessarily just with something like NFL and Dapper or La Liga, but like the, the benefits quote unquote, the in real life or in virtual life benefits of, of what they've established at, at least as the Soho house of top shot, their words, not mine, that like it, it has, it will have perks and it will, con ha will continue to have perks. Um, and whether or not they're worth the money for you is, is, you know, relative to every single person and collector, but you know, everybody that's hoping on a prayer that like something else gets tagged to be that type of entrance ticket to, or like, um, you know, tokenized membership into something like they've made it pretty clear at this point that like, that's going to be the thing. And if you're not cool jumping on board, that's fine. But like, that's, that's something. So those three sort of pillars are, are sort of what undergird my collection more broadly. Um, I will say that I'm probably in the next couple of days or weeks, like, gonna consolidate some stuff and like just take a deeper look at the 230 or 240 moments that I have and like figure out what are the things I don't love that even if they're not super expensive on the marketplace that I'm happy punting and building some dapper to maybe buy some other pieces that I like that are more rare, S1s, MGLEs, um, those types of things that like I like looking at and I like t showing to people uh, or cool plays or whatnot. So. Um, I'm excited for that. And I think also, you know, as I'm, as these pack drops come out, going to try and hit some S2 or S3 rookies. Um, and if I don't end up hitting them in a pack, I'll probably snag a couple of them throughout the next couple of weeks. Yeah. The, the, the bulls, uh, I, I owe, uh, four badge is really sweet. It's he, he, he gets a layup and then there's a steal and an immediate layup. So it's a four point sort of moment, um, which is pretty rare. So no, I, I, that was the, I purchased Again, I mean, like I, I got my Caruso moment was really cheap. I, I bought my four badger and and I was good with that. So now, like when you think about the broader NFT space with non top shot stuff, what's the strategy and mindset that you have toward the, the rest of the broader NFT space right now? Yeah, so it, 
it's colored very specifically by gas right now. So um, I'm not an ETH maxi necessarily, but I haven't dabbled in other blockchains other than Polygon type stuff. Um, so I'm not on Solana or anything like that, but I think we've hit a pretty heavy saturation point with PFP projects more broadly, but that doesn't mean that minting isn't fun <laughs> and minting things that are, you know, cost, cost on and have the right momentum and, you know, have the same dynamics of like hitting a pack lottery or something like that. Those are the types of things that I still find myself drawn to, even if I haven't participated in any recently because of the cost of gas and my focus on NFT NYC and some of the other stuff that I've got in my real life. Um, but those are the types of things that like, all right, chasing, chasing the dopamine on that one is tough to, to ignore. Um, but sort of paying attention to the signaling in the space, if you're looking to trade quickly, um, can be helpful. Um, the other thing too is like you've seen or we've seen a pretty heavy consolidation into what we you know like you hear termed blue chip projects um you know and blue chip is not a nominal value it is uh it is something that is sort of a perception value i think because there are i i would say blue chips at various price points not just all you know in a, it's too super expensive stuff um, and I think the focus there is on teams that continue to build, right? Teams that are continuing to not necessarily just engage their community, but to keep rolling with new interesting things to, to bring forward, um, new derivative type of uh, utility uh, aspects. Um, the token stuff scares me a little bit, but you know, I probably will ride that moving forward with things like Coolcats and um, some of the other projects that are out there. Pernelope's is one that I'm super into because of all the different tokenomics behind the scenes and um, the airdrops and, you know, I have just ultimate faith in Carlini and, and what his team is doing and, and how they're approaching things where it's sort of like not only tokens, but an NFT mutual fund that you're buying shares into um, or being dropped shares into. So those types of things are really exciting to me. Uh, and, you know, reading the reading the writing on the wall and in many cases on some of this stuff is like, it's very likely that there are going to be projects that are going to be worth absolutely nothing. And that's okay. Um, but if you have an opportunity to consolidate into things that are well established at this point, have a few month track record of, of continued engagement. And even if there are fluctuations in price uh, up and down, you know, even swings of 0.5 ETH one way or another, or a full ETH or two ETH, um, there are things that are going to continue on independent of the price action on them. Um, so again, it's a zoom out thing for me where like right now prices or before ETH dipped <laughs> just the last day or two, um, like prices in the last month got significantly hindered by the fact that ETH was running and gas became very cost prohibitive for minting things that were lower, you know, lower value nominally. Um, and, and as a result, like there, my, my collection has been sort of sit and wait uh, for the last few months uh, or last month or so. Um, but I'm certainly looking at a handful of things that are upcoming uh, and and some of the more established stuff to to sort of either double down or um, look for new opportunities for new things that are coming. So uh, maintaining liquidity is hard <laughs> for sure. I think I've done a decent job of it in the last few months uh, so that I can pivot and move quickly when things come up. Um, because I think that's an invaluable asset that people don't re recognize is um, being able to pivot and move and go with where things are going instead of being stuck in your ways is um, is a scary thing um, because it increases volatility and it's more of a risk on uh, sort of investment strategy if you're looking at it from an investment perspective. Um, but it does allow for you to sort of move on quickly and, and not think too he too heavily or hard about um, where your financial interests are from an emotional perspective. Yeah, it's a great point. And and I think for me, uh, because I am risk averse, like 
my whole thing is I don't want to put any more money in. Like I, I want to just use what I'm getting off of trading assets or selling assets and, and, and just recycle that money into my NFT collection. Like I'm not trying to add any more um, just because I, I, yeah, I just want to not have to feel the stress of it being a financial burden or like thinking about it and anything that I'm paying for. It's just something that I have a healthy amount of Dapper that's ready. I have a decent amount of ETH that's ready and it's sort of there. Um, and, and that's so, the mindset so you- that I have. You bring up a good point, and there's been a lot of conversation and a lot of talk recently and sort of outward-facing conversations about mental health um, in the space, and it's, I think people don't realize that it, it's, there are so many factors that are compounding that are self-inflicted that significantly affect people's mental health with stuff. Like, money is so stressful. Like, generally speaking, it's, it's, if not the biggest stressor in most people's lives, it's one of them, especially if you don't have a lot of it or you have a tenuous amount of it, right? Um, because the swings change so significantly the, the trajectory of your life, or at least the perception of the trajectory of your life. So I agree with you completely. I'm very much in favor of like, hey, if you have an opportunity to, to only play with house money, play with house money. I would also highlight, and again, not, not financial advice on any of this, but like, I personally have taken profits off the table and I have built a patio and I've like bought new kitchen appliances and I've like taken my family places and I've bought things that have like enriched my in real life life uh, with this stuff, which sort of offsets some of the the sort of stress and anxiety that can come with that type of stuff where you've got an account valuation that's fluctuating up and down, whether it's top shot or otherwise, like those massive swings and and the loss of sleep that comes with that and the bad eating and the bad habits and the like lack of mindfulness that you're, you're practicing or the, you know, those things have like a, an additive effect um, or a deleterious effect, I should say on, on your mental health and mental space. And if you can get to a spot where you're comfortable with the amount that you have in, in the positions that you have in, then you're going to be much better for it. And more clear headed and make better decisions and all of those things. So it's not, it's not an insignificant point that you make of like financial significant or like financial security or risk off stuff. Um, yes. While you may miss the thing that goes a hundred X, like, you know, it does, it does allow for some more stability in, in the other yeah. elements of your life. And, and you know, you, the, the idea of missing on a hundred X, like what if you, what if you hit on 10 X and miss on a hundred X, you're going to feel just as terrible as if you, you, you missed on the hundred X entirely. Like if you had an ape and you sold it for two ETH and you're out of the apes, you're pissed. Like you, you don't feel any better than I do for not having one. You, you may even feel worse because you know, you, you had this thing that was appreciating. And, and this all for me was a hobby. It was a release. It was a way to like, um, do something with my son. My oldest son is really interested in all of this. And like, he's seven and he's fascinated by all this. Like it, it was never, uh, I want to, I want to day trade NFTs for my, my job. That was never where it was for me. And I think that, you know, you, it, from just say an American perspective, like you couple the fact that there's a lot of really young people in the space. And you also couple with the fact that there's really no sort of like, financial literacy, financial education provided to kids from like a school perspective. And I'd say this as a a very, very experienced school administrator, like could be a real recipe for disaster. People chasing these 10 X's and 20 X's. It's like, it's kind of like, you know, having the OTBs and having, being able to gamble on your phone. Like that's, 
that's a it's a pretty easy thing to fall into and get addicted to and and sort of you know run afoul with. So I'm I'm a big like proponent of if you love the thrill of that like sort of risk volatility, then cool. But like if you're me and there's nothing lame about just knowing who you are and going like that's not for me. And as someone who has kids. Uh, and, and uh, you know, a family, like, that's just not for me. Like, I'm not, a, I am not uh, someone who enjoys to gamble. But the idea of playing small with house money is enjoyable to me because it's like, oh, cool. If this thing hits, great. And if it doesn't, cool. I like this art. I can, I can hang on to it in my wallet. And one thing I think we've learned to plunge is like, the funks are a good example. I just went through funk hell um, with OpenSea, uh, but they did make it right today, by the way, uh, which was nice. Um, <laughs> they, 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 the funks are a great example of a collection that it, it ripped for a little bit and then it got delisted and then no one, t- and then all of a sudden it started selling for one ETH, 1.5 ETH. So, I mean, if you had stacked 10 of those for 0.01, it's pretty good, uh, pretty good month for you if you're looking to get rid of those things. So you never know when something's going to catch on fire and when it's going to take off or when it's going to go to zero. And I think that's both the thrill and the, the torture of this space. Yeah, it's it's uh, playing with fire in a lot of ways <laughs> on some of that stuff. And I've sort of stayed away from the vast majority of derivative projects uh, just because it's it's towing a very gray area between like the um like not not even what's legally accessible or enforceable but like community uh sentiment stuff so like uh, a really good example right now is this like little baby apes thing right like oh, that it's it's a nightmare from a from like a racism and stealing of property perspective but if you take a step back from that and like disregard the other pieces of it why did it catch fire well cut fire because people in the board apes community were okay with it and they didn't say hey this is not cool right it does take to some degree some especially with derivative projects it does take to some degree some like level of acceptance from the larger community or at least the the original community uh in order for uh, there to be a sustained connection to it and yeah (laughs) that fell apart pretty quickly the only time i've felt comfortable with derivatives uh was when ape dow did ape dow remix why because i knew that the dow owned those apes so i knew that the chain of custody in terms of like approvals for them being commissioned and everything was on the up and up because i can see in the dow that these people own the apes so therefore the derivatives and i was already a member of the dow prior right but like i i loved for me it was like great i can participate in ape dumb i'm not breaking my bank to do it the art is super dope i love what i'm minting like yes so you know, they're, they're, that's like a perfect example of a compromise for me. Like I want to participate in the apes. The DAO is the perfect way for me to do it because I can have access to the community. I can have, be a part of the ape community, but do it in a way where it's not overextending myself or giving myself anxiety. Like, uh, and, and that is a big deal to me. Um, Plunge, we, we've gone, we've gone everywhere. We've gone regular NFTs. We've gone financial institutions. We've gone, derivatives we've gone top shot positive on this uh podcast you should feel okay <laughs> about top shot you should feel good about top shot anything you want to anything in your head that you want to just uh get out before we we jump off today oh man uh <laughs> that's a loaded question i i would i would leave everybody with this that like it's exciting and it's fun um and it's really fun when you're making money <laughs> 
and it's a lot less fun when you're not or things are staying still. So again, the zoom out concept here is not unique to Topshot. It's not unique to NFTs or in general, but if you're ever in the spot where it's like, hey, I'm, I'm, I care too much about this. There's too much going on. I'm too angry about this particular thing. Like take a step, take a beat, take a breath, zoom out, try and contextualize some stuff. Listen to people that are smarter than you. Uh, try, <laughs> try, and, try and absorb as much as you can. Um, when things are down, pivot and figure out your next move and so forth, like be strategic about things. But um, it does take a level of self-awareness to do that. And I think some people just need the push. So if uh, this is your sign, <laughs> you know, like the sign on the, on the, someone holding a sign on the a cardboard on the freeway, like if you're waiting for a sign, this is the sign, this is the sign telling you to zoom out, maybe take a break, <laughs> um, come back uh, after you've had some conversations with people over Thanksgiving in the next week or two, um, if you're celebrating Thanksgiving in America, um, and uh, sort of re reframe your expectations because things move so fast. Um, and, and as I mentioned before, there's so much coming in the next three, six, 12 months. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine, you know, compared to what we saw six months ago, even, right? What May, right? May of, of 2021, very, very different place in, than, uh, than November of 2021. So I'll leave, with, I'll leave with that, but it was good talking to you and I really appreciate the, uh, the conversation. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. And uh, I'm sure we'll do this again. Um, you're going to have uh, my boss, Casey Kuhlman, on the plunge-in this week. Uh, excited to, to hear him on stream talk about Aspen and all the things that are, are, are going on there. So um, our, our ties are only becoming stronger uh, as we go plunge. And I'm a big fan of your work. And I think your voice is, uh, is a really important one in the space. Uh, and I think you have really smart takes on sort of indifferent takes on where things are. I remember several beers in having that Top Shot conversation with you on the balcony at the box about, <laughs> about scarcity and appreciation and S1. So uh, I think, uh, you know, keep doing what you do, man. Appreciate you. Yeah, you got to ask the question, who's the Mel Roach of Top Shot? <laughs> is it is it Chetty Osman? <laughs> Cosmic? I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah, I was just asking on Twitter today who the uh, Alex Caruso of Packard Media is. It's, it's a parallel conversation. But yeah, I, I don't know. We'll have to find out. Maybe it's a good uh, Twitter poll to put out after people listen to the episode. Thanks a lot, Plunge, for joining. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a good one. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Plunge Father. It was a lot of fun to make. Check out his stream weekly. Uh, it starts at 9.30 Central Time on Twitch. You can find the information for that on his Twitter profile in the show notes. Uh, Plunge Father is a great guest. Please join me this week with my good friend Desert Minter for Aspen Scambusters happening Saturday, every Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Central. We have uh, a really interesting scenario to talk about in terms of scams this week with uh, someone who lost 300 to 500 ETH worth of NFTs from their wallet. So not a great story, but as always, thank you so much for joining. We'll